This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. I hope you're enjoying your Memorial Day holiday. We're going to listen to my recent interview with Tim McGraw, one of the biggest stars in country music for years. Lately, though, it's an acting role that's getting him attention. He stars with his wife, singer Faith Hill, and Sam Elliott in the Western TV series on Paramount Plus called 1883. It tells the story of a large group of Eastern European immigrants trying to make their way in covered wagons from Texas to Oregon to start new lives. They know little about horses, wagons, or America, and they're led in the journey by experienced cowboys, including the characters played by Elliot, McGraw, and LaMonica Garrett, all veterans of the Civil War. The pioneers face every conceivable hardship and plenty of tragedy, realistically depicted in the production which the cast shot on location over five months in Texas and Montana. The series is a prequel to the successful Paramount Plus series Yellowstone, which is about the descendants of McGraw's character in modern-day Montana. All 10 episodes of 1883 are available for streaming. McGraw's previous acting roles include parts in the movies Friday Night Lights, The Blind Side, and Country Strong. Tim McGraw has been recording number one country albums since 1994 and has won three Grammys and 14 Academy of Country Music Awards. He's also a celebrated performer. His tours with Faith Hill have been some of the biggest grossing tours in country music history. And he's also the son of the late Major League pitcher Tug McGraw, though he didn't connect with his father until late in his childhood. Well, Tim McGraw, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. This series, 1883, is a story about these immigrants, as I mentioned, most of whom don't speak English and in some cases can't speak to each other, Um, and those who agree to lead them on this dangerous journey, the characters of Sam Elliott and LaMonica Garrett, uh, who's a black cowboy. Your character, James Dutton, is a little different from those two. You want to describe him, what his role is? Yeah, James um, comes from Tennessee, and he was planning on, on making this journey alone with his family. You know, right from the beginning when you see James, and he's, he's trying to get to Fort Worth to get supplied and everything, bringing everything they had from Tennessee and get set to go on their trip. Um, he, he's, he's already in a gunfight, getting chased by bandits, and, you know, he shoots six people right in the first couple <laughs> of scenes, scenes of the show, just to show the danger that he was in. He suffered. He was trying to outrun ghosts in a lot of ways, I believe. Um, he was in the Civil War. It was a war he didn't believe in. And certainly everything that was going on, you know, during Reconstruction and, and after Reconstruction and how terrible things had gotten after the war. And uh, I think he was just trying to find a clean place that was unsoiled by everything that he had gone through and everything that he knew for his family and a place that he could feel like that he'd gotten past all of that. You know, as I, as I watched, and I wanted to keep in mind scenes that I could use in our interview, uh, one of the things I noticed is that he's a man of relatively few words. There's not a lot of long monologues. <laughs> right, right. Thank goodness. No, <laughs> no he, he's, you know, he's, he's certainly uh, terse and to the point when he, when, he, when he has something to say. He doesn't mess around, and he, he's not a, some big poetic speaker. He talks the most to his wife and his daughter, for sure. And his main concern is is, is the safety of his family. Um, and that's why, ultimately, I, th- I think after a few things that happened, you know, his, his daughter is attacked and almost raped by a drunk guy, and he ends up shooting that guy. And I, and I think it, it, he starts to realize what he's really gotten himself into and what he's gotten his family into. And, and that's the point that he decides to sort of team up with with uh, Sam and LaMonica's char- characters and help this wagon train. And I, and I think as the, as the 
show develops, you you see everybody has different arcs in the show, which I think which makes the character arcs in the show, which makes it so interesting when you how you see everyone change, and I think you start seeing the concern and and the care that James starts taking with with everybody in the wagon train, not just his family. Right. They're all together. Well, I want to listen to a scene, and and this will take just a little bit of setup here. I mean, this is after your 18-year-old daughter, Elsa, had she'd fallen in love with one of the cowboys on the drive, and then he was killed when the group was attacked by bandits. Elsa sees this, sees him die, and then in her fury, shoots and kills the one bandit who was captured alive and was being held by two members of the party. Uh, After that, she is in a trading post a few days later, and a guy gives her a salacious stare. She pulls a weapon, nearly shoots him, and you as as her dad are concerned about her being caught up in this rage. So what we hear is it's nighttime. Elsa is on her horse watching the cattle, this 18-year-old daughter of yours, and you ride up to give her a a life lesson about violence and hate. Uh, And in, in doing it, you refer to your experience in the Civil War. Let's listen. I'm going to tell you a story. You're going to listen. I think I've earned that right. Hope I have. Listen. First man I killed... Hmm. was just a boy. Younger than you. The reason companies have flag bearers so soldiers know to stay with their group. And generals on the hill can track the progress of the battle. So much dust and smoke and battle. Fighting in a fog. It's hard to make out the enemy. Can't tell your men from theirs. But you can always look up and see the flags. So we shoot flag bearers first. And I did. That boy's face was burned in my brain. The whole world seemed to stop as this boy's looking right at me. By the end of the battle, I... I killed so many men. I couldn't remember what that boy looked like. Still can't. That man you shot was already dead. Whether we hanged him or he bled out, it's time when this earth was done. You did not kill him. Understand? meanest thing you can do to yourself is hate somebody else. I know what it feels like to hate the world. You don't want to feel it, honey. Be sad. Miss him. Cry yourself blind. You leave hating at me. And that's our guest, Tim McGraw, in the Paramount Plus series 1883, giving his daughter a life lesson. Um, it's a powerful scene, and I'd say, I have to say beautifully written by Taylor Sheridan, who did the, did the screenplay. Absolutely. I mean, he, the writing in this entire script was just 
part of what drew Faith and I in and, and so be so passionate about all the actors. We were so passionate about the writing and the storytelling that um, it, it just every day we all showed up just really wanted, wanted to live up to the, what Taylor had written and what the script says and how great it was because it, was, it had those, all those beautiful moments and it had tons of those kinds of moments. I mean, that moment right there you just played, I mean, it hits me. It was hitting me hard just listening to it. I'd never just really listened to it. I'd only seen it when we'd finished the show. But uh, it, uh, it, it's full. The whole series is, is full of moments like that in the writing. It's certainly, in the narration of our daughter Elsa, she narrates the entire show, and her narration is, is pure poetry throughout the entire show. And if I understand, the crew spent five months together shooting this on location, mostly in Texas, then in Montana. Um, there's a lot that goes on. Like you actually drive wagons across a river, which was dangerous in 1883 and is still dangerous. How hard and dangerous did it all feel? Well, the wagons, I think, was the most dangerous part of it for sure. And we spent a lot of time, you know, we all spent probably around three weeks at cowboy camp. You know, everybody, a lot of people hadn't ridden before or done anything like that before. So the the wranglers there were so excellent in teaching everybody. I, I, I was lucky that I grew up riding horses. I grew up in Louisiana and my stepdad was a cowboy. So I, I could ride before I could walk. So I had plenty of experience with horses. So that was, it was for me, it was just fun to get back on and get going again. But the wagon driving was something completely different. I'd never done that before. And, and Faith had to do that the most. That's what she, that was her main sort of thing that she did while we were, while we were shooting was driving that wagon. And she was driving that wagon across that river. And that happened to be, it was probably 36 degrees out freezing cold i was you know up to up to my waist and on the horse and water and it was probably 3 30 in the morning and it was our 25th wedding anniversary oh when we did that wow. scene crossing wow. that wagon wow. <laughs> and i was more afraid for her than i was anything of course but uh but it was it was uh she handled it like a pro she she became pretty proficient at it so, you know, you and, and your wife, Faith Hill, are playing, you know, a, a couple in a mature marriage, which you have. I mean, you've been married for a quarter, quarter of a century when you did this. Um, did it affect your relationship at all? Did it feel like hand in glove or were you inventing something new and dealing with each other? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I think the best way that I can answer that, and it's probably not a direct answer to your question, but it might give you a sense of what I'm trying to say. You know, when we got the scripts, the way we read the scripts, they would come in and we would get maybe two or three at a time. And we would alternate taking turns. We'd lay in bed and she would read the entire script. And then I, I would, like episode one, for instance, she would, we'd lay in bed and she would read the entire script out loud. And then, then we'd, I would read episode two out loud. But we never sat down and we never rehearsed our lines together. We never rehearsed scenes together because we wanted, we didn't want to bring so much of Tillman Faith into our characters. We wanted it to remain Margaret and James. Now, maybe some of Margaret and James got into Tillman Faith sometimes <laughs> while we were shooting, <laughs> but, but we really wanted, we, we thought, you know, look, we, when we sat down to sign the contract, when we committed to doing this, and because we fell in love with the script and, you know, the whole, all the deal points got, got right, we were, I remember we were sitting on our patio and I looked at Faith and I told her that 
you know, once we sign this, we are, we are no longer the boss anymore. We're, we're hired help. And secondly, we're never going to have a comfortable day, and it's going to be really hard work. And it was. It was, you know, 14-hour days, six days a week. We probably got three hours of sleep a night. And I said, and thirdly, you know, it's, it's going to be tough for people to accept us to, in these roles. I mean, first off, they're going to think that we're not going to be up to it. Secondly, they're going to think they can't get past it being the two of us together on screen because we had never been on screen together before. She had done a couple movies. I've done a few movies. So we had never been Tim and Faith on screen. So so we have a lot of obstacles to overcome. And, and I looked at her and I said, you know, the only way to beat that is, and she said, just go kill it. And I said, that's right. Let's just go kill it. And that's we gave each other a high five and a kiss and signed the paper. You know, you've had several movie roles before. Did you take acting lessons? Had it? I didn't. I probably should, <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably too late now. Um, no, I didn't. You know, and you know, I, I've always loved movies as a kid, and you know, did it like every kid did a couple of plays and stuff like that when you're a kid. Um, but I was always an athlete, so that was really warm up where my focus was at. But. Um, and then when you know when I when I started having some hit records, you know then those offers start coming to you, and 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 I was interested in doing movies. I always was interested in it, but my biggest fear was so I and I didn't do one for a long, long time. My biggest fear was look, I've got success here, and the worst thing I can do is go be bad at something else and then ruin the success that I have over here. So it took me a long time to to actually find something. I mean, I read a lot of scripts, but it just I never could make myself pull the trigger until I read Friday Night Lights. And uh, and uh, just I just instantly when I read it, it's like, I know that guy. I I know that character. You play a, 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 basically an abusive dad who storms onto the field because his son had dropped a pass. I mean, right. you know that. How do you know that character? How? Well, I mean, I, I came from a pretty dysfunctional family, you know, early in my life and uh, saw a lot of abuse and dealt with a lot of abuse. Like your dad was that character in a way? Your, your, your stepdad, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. My stepdad was, he was, could be the sweetest guy in the world, and he could be that guy, too. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, he had drinking problems. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, he was partly, certainly partly there. But it was also growing up playing Little League and football and stuff and seeing, you know, I grew up in Louisiana, I remember, and, and sort of, you know, in, in a rural community, and, and which was it was a beautiful and great community. But you know, th- those guys were around, and you saw them quite a bit. And I've, I've seen those things happen. Anybody, anybody that's been around little league ball knows that those parents sometimes can be <laughs> can be some of the worst. You just hope that's not, he's not the coach because sometimes he is. <laughs> exactly. You grew up in Louisiana, you mentioned, and your stepfather, who was the guy you, you thought was your father as you grew up, was a, a truck driver, right? A cowboy? Uh, cowboy truck driver, yeah. Tough, I mean, tough guy, yeah. yeah. Um, they split when you were about 10. Now, you know, people who know you know that you were, in, in fact, the biological child of Tug McGraw, uh, the major league pitcher who pitched for the Mets, Mets and Phillies, brought a championship, helped bring the championship to the Philadelphia in, in 1980. How did you learn that he was your, actually your dad? Uh, you know, it was it was totally by accident. Um, you know, my my stepdad and my mom divorced, and we had just moved. And in a, in a, I guess it was about six months after the divorce. We were maybe a little longer than that. Uh, you know, it's hard to get time right. But we'd moved in with my grandparents for a little while. Then we finally moved into a house in rural Louisiana. And I was going through a closet for some reason. 
and I found a box. And when I opened the box, my birth certificate was in the box. And and it had it was everything was printed out on it, um, except for the last name. It just there was just one line through it in pen, in handwritten ink pen, just one line, and then Smith written in cursive above it. But it it had my dad's full name. It said his occupation was professional baseball player. And it was, you know, it was pretty much a shock (laughs) when you find something like that. And I thought there had to be some sort of mistake. And oddly enough, I had three baseball cards on my wall. Um, I can't remember the first one. One was Cesar Cedeno, and the third one was Tug that I had up on my wall because he was one of my favorite players, believe it or not. And, And I don't know that that was something that my mom subconsciously pointed him out to me or if I just he just became a favorite player I don't know how that happened he just you know but every he was a lot of kids favorite player back then because he was such a character I mean the story I guess is that you know he was a minor league baseball player in Jacksonville, Jacksonville Florida in yeah. 1967 and he had a relationship with your mom who was I guess still in high school then and uh you were the result and uh, he moved on she moved on um um, what was it like when you met for the first time? Well, it was it was unusual for sure. Um, what did you know? My mom. It was her. She didn't finish her senior year because she had gotten pregnant with me. So, sort of the family in Florida sent her to Louisiana to to live with relatives, and I was born in Louisiana. Um, but after I found my birth certificate, I called my mom. Um, she was at work, and I asked her what it was. This was all about, and she. You could just feel an audible gasp and, and heart fa- failure, you know, from her when when I told her. And she said, I'll be right home. And she got home, and we. she said, let's go for a ride. And we got in the car, and we just drove around, and she told me the whole story. Um, she didn't She didn't say anything, tell him that she was pregnant. Um, she, you know, moved to Louisiana. On the day I was born, my grandmother called and actually called and got him in the Mets dugout <laughs> just to say that, just to tell him I was born, and that was it. That was the only communication he ever had. And so when I found the birth certificate, I just told mom that I wanted to meet him, as any kid would. And um, she got in touch with his lawyer, I believe, and said that I'd found out. So. Mom borrowed a car because she didn't have a car that could make it, and we drove to Houston. And he left us a couple tickets, and um, we got to go into the game bef- before much batting practice. And I remember t- tossing the ball with him a little bit, um, watching batting practice. And I remember he gave up a grand slam when he came in at the game I saw. Maybe I a little distracted. <laughs> yeah, but I only saw him pitch twice. And that w- that was the first year. So... We had a lunch, and he goes, you know, we can be friends, but you know, I, I don't know if I'm your dad or not. I don't, you know, I'm not sure about any of that, but you know, we can be friends. So I left. Um, the next year, I wanted to go back and see him, and of course, mom, being a good, great mom, she arranged to get tickets, and we drove to Houston again. And I had she had got me a McGraw shirt with, with Phillies colors, and had the name on the back and his number and everything. So I was wearing that, and. He was in the bullpen, and back then at the Astrodome, with the warm-up spot where the, they would throw at the bullpen, you could go right up next to it. And um, I remember going over and walking and standing right in front of him and yelling, hey, Doug, and just tell him I'm back. I want to go and see it. See, and he ignored me the whole time, and that was the last time I saw him. 
Oh, gosh. Well, we need to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with country singing star Tim McGraw. He stars with his wife, Faith Hill, in the new Paramount Plus Western series, 1883. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross, and we're speaking with country music star Tim McGraw, who's also had several acting roles. He stars with his wife, country singer Faith Hill, along with Sam Elliott and LaMonica Garrett, in the new Paramount Plus TV Western series, 1883. It's the story of some veteran cowboys leading a group of Eastern European immigrants hoping to get from Texas to Oregon by horse and wagon. All 10 episodes are available for streaming. When we left off, McGraw told us how he'd learned at the age of 11 that his real father wasn't the truck driver his mom had divorced, but a famous athlete, big league pitcher Tug McGraw. Tim met Tug McGraw after that discovery, but it didn't lead to an ongoing relationship. You did connect later on when you were like 18 or so, I guess, right? Yeah, when I was 18 and I graduated high school, I'd had a few scholarship offers Nothing major, uh, you know, I was just, wasn't the biggest kid in the world, but I was a good athlete. But um, I knew mom was going to have trouble paying for college. And so I asked mom, I said, you need to get in touch with Tug's attorney and find out about getting college paid for, or at least helping us pay for college, because I don't want to put that burden on you. And she kept trying and kept trying and kept getting the runaround, kept getting the runaround, kept getting the runaround. And then Right before I ran on the field for my last high school football game, she stops me right, you know, right before you run through the paper sign, you know, when you're all jacked up. She stops and she goes, I got papers from Tug's lawyer today. And I'm like, oh gosh, don't tell me this right before a football game, my last high school football game. So I ran out, at least I had a good game that night, and got home and read the papers. And it had agreed to just a minimal amount of money and helping just a little bit, but I could, I never could use the name and I couldn't ever make contact with him again. And I looked at mom and I says, all right, I'll sign all of this, but he has to see me one more time. And uh, so they agreed that we would meet one more time and then that we would sign the contract and I'd be out of his life forever. And so we drove again to Houston. So he hadn't seen me since I was 11 years old. And I remember walking into the lobby of the hotel and I was the same height as him at that point. And my mom pointed and said, there he is right there. So I just walked right over and tapped him on the shoulder, and he turned around. And uh, the first thing that I noticed more than anything was his lawyer's jaw hit the ground because we looked almost exactly alike. So it was like he was like, oh, my God, we're screwed. <laughs> and so we talked, and um, we spent the day together, had dinner that night. And um, I, uh, mom and I and he were having dinner, and I asked mom if she would mind letting Tug and I talk for a minute a moment alone, and, and she wasn't too sure about that, and, and I told her that it was okay, it was fine. And so she got up and left, and I just looked him in the eye and says, look, as far as I'm concerned, this dinner's over, This uh, all this mess is over with, I'm going to sign your contract, I just want you to answer one question, do you think you're my dad? And he says, I know I am. And I said, that was all I needed to know. And, um, and then he said, we're going to tear the contract up. And so I, we did. Wow. You know, I, I've seen in a documentary about your life, Tug McGraw describing that moment. I think it's the same moment. And when he, he can barely say he wanted to know, can I call you dad? That's what I think he remembers you saying. And it choked him up. Um, 
you developed a, a, a real relationship, and unfortunately, he died young from brain cancer when he was just 49. 59, um, 59, yeah. Was oh, that right? 59. That's right. Same age my dad died, right? Um, one of the things that's interesting about this to me is that you know, the odds of two people you know, who share genes, both being really successful in two different fields are pretty remote. And one thing you can see about Tug McGraw as a pitcher that everybody that watched him was that he wasn't just a great athlete. He was a performer. He was – he brought a lightness to it. I mean, he, you know, just lifted people's spirits and joked a lot. And I, there's, there was something about him I think that was an entertainer too. Yeah, you know, he brought a boyish enthusiasm to the game. Like he, he made you feel like every little kid that falls in love with the game from the beginning. And and he always had that sort of love and that sort of vibrance about baseball. And uh, he was just such a fan of the sport and so grateful to the sport and always had such a love for it. Did you feel that you had the relationship that you wanted before he died? I wouldn't say that we had a father-son relationship. Um, if we did, it was more me being the father and him being the son. If we had a father-son relationship at all, we got close. We were good friends. I mean, his older brother, my uncle Hank, we're close to this day. Um, and my two brothers that live in Philly from Tug, we all have different mothers, but we're, we're close. And my sister Carrie, who's Tug's daughter, we're close. So everybody's close. Um, and we got close. You know, when he was dying, I spent a lot of time with him. He wanted to come to a cabin on our farm, and that's where he wanted to spend his last days. And so we got to hang out with him and spend a lot of time with him. I think the biggest, if you can call it regret, that I have is the time that we got to spend together as he was dying. I, I sort of waited for him to say something about the whole situation, some sort of just um, have a conversation about it, and we, we never had that conversation. So I'll, I'll always sort of feel like I'm, I missed that part of it. Um, as I understand it, you did go to college, and then at some point just were having so much fun playing and singing that you decided to move to Nashville and sing if you, to see if you could make a go of it, right? You, yeah, I did. I went to Northeast Louisiana University in Monroe, which well, now it's called uh, University of Louisiana at Monroe, but at the time it was called Northeast Louisiana University. And um, it was only 10 miles from home, 12 miles from home. But, um, yeah, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. I was a good student in high school. Sure enough, I pledged a fraternity and became a pike and picked up a guitar in my first summer of college and started learning songs. And by the end of the summer, I had a repertoire of about 50 songs. So I started playing for tips at a local restaurant. And then I put a band together. And then there was less and less of going to class and more and more of going out and playing music at night until till it became unsustainable <laughs> at the, on the class level. And I remember I sold everything I had. I sold my car. I sold my, my shotguns. Everything that I had, I sold. And I was going to buy a bus ticket to Nashville and have enough money to be in a hotel for a couple weeks if I needed to. Um, before that, I had to call my mom and let her know that I was dropping out of school, which scared me to death because I knew she didn't graduate high school because of me. She didn't get the opportunities in life that she wanted because of me, um, because I I was born and she had that responsibility and she she had to, she was in an abusive relationship probably because she thought I, she needed help and needed the support. Um, so all of these reasons, she wanted me to succeed and I wanted to succeed for her. 
And, and so I was scared to death to call her and tell her I was going to drop out of college. And when I finally got the nerve to do that, I called her and said, Mom, I'm just letting you know that I'm dropping out of college and I'm moving to Nashville to play music. And there was silence on the line. And, and of course, I expected the, you know, hell no, you're not. But, I, but what I got back from my mom was, well, I'm surprised you haven't done that already. And she said, and you need to go do it. Otherwise, you'll always wonder if you could have made it. Well, yeah, it worked. I mean, you—I mean, not overnight, obviously, but you, you got there. Eventually, got a, a you know, contract with Curb Records. Did a first album, uh, self-titled, uh, not a big hit, but then the second and third really took off, um, and you know, you became a a big thing. I, I want to play one of your. Um, better known tunes. This is something that you hear in your concerts a lot. This is, well, people might recognize this. I know you. I like it. I love it from our guest, Tim McGraw. You know, you can go on YouTube, and there are at least a half a dozen videos posted by fans of you performing that song in huge arenas where they sing every chorus. I mean, um, it's interesting. You know, country music has its own kind of style in a way. I mean, you have this – got to have the voice that hits and holds the notes. But, you know, it's putting the emotion into the song, you know, the right places – to whine a little on a line. I mean, I'm wondering, in developing your voice coming up, did you model it after anyone? I, you know, gosh, I don't know that I modeled it. Um, just like any kid, you know, I listen to the radio all the time. I can remember driving a tractor and listening to the radio. Um, I mean, I love country music. I listen to it all the time. But I also love pop music and rock music, too. So, I mean, I was hugely influenced in my record making and probably vocally a little bit, I hope. I wish I could sing like him by the Eagles. They were probably all my all-time favorite band of, and music of, of anything. Um, Merle Haggard certainly was a big influence on me vocally. Um, George Strait. Keith Whitley, um, Alabama, wore Alabama out when I was a kid. I mean, the band Alabama, I just couldn't get enough of those guys. So, yeah, I had, all those guys influenced me. But, you know, Phil Collins is another one that I, uh, that's fantastic and love. And I think all that stuff sort of finds its way into my music. I mean, we're all sort of a product of, of our environment, right, and the stuff that we listen to and the stuff that we absorb and and, and sort of turns into this sort of goulash that, you, that you're able to put together and get out. And, and that's... I guess that's sort of the way my music developed is it's sort of this mixture of all the things that I loved as a kid growing up and still do now and stuff that I listen to and hear now, stuff that I would never have heard unless I had 
you know, four teenage girls that I was taking to cheerleader practice in my car, and I would hear it and go, wow, that's an interesting sound, and stuff, you know, just finding different, you know, when you're making a record, you're finding different sounds and different tones and, and stuff like that. We need to take a break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with country singing star Tim McGraw. He stars with his wife, Faith Hill, in the new Paramount Plus Western series, 1883. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with country music star Tim McGraw, who's also had several acting roles. He currently stars with his wife, Faith Hill, along with Sam Elliott and LaMonica Garrett in the new Paramount Plus TV Western series, 1883. Um, so, Faith Hill, you, you met when you were both on tour. You were both seeing other people at the time. Um, did you know right away this was it? Oh, gosh, I knew right instantly. I knew the first time I saw a picture of her that I was in love. Um, our tour, it was my first headlining tour, and I asked her to be, asked her, not personally, but my management asked her management to, if she would open, open the tour, and she agreed. And it was called the Spontaneous Combustion Tour, believe it or not. Um, so we did a show a little before our tour started. We did a festival together, which was the first time we'd ever spent any time around each other. And uh, so we used to do the Joker by the Steve Miller Band was our encore song. And we used to do this thing where we'd all get at the front of the stage and we'd do a sort of slide guitar kind of thing. And we're doing that, and I feel some presence behind me, and I turn around, and it's Faith, and she's doing the slide with us. And I turn around and look at her, and I said, okay boy, something's up here. And, um, you know, she was in a relationship. I, I was just getting out of my relationship. We started our tour, and then we went about, I don't know, I guess it was a little over a month, two months, and I finally just, I walked into her dressing room one day and just kissed her. I, was, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't help myself. And, uh, and then, you know, she had to untangle herself, and, yeah. and by the end of the tour, we were married. How did you propose? Do you remember? I tried to propose a couple of times, but she didn't take me seriously. But um, I remember the time when she said yes, and I was really serious about it, was um, I want to say we are in Montana, but we were at a big outdoor country music festival, and they had set up these trailer houses that were our dressing rooms. And she wasn't playing. She was just there with me, riding along with me. And um, I, have a, I had a road case that had a mirror and some clothes hanging in it, and we're standing there, and I'm just about to go on stage in this little trailer house with, you know, 50,000 people out there at this festival, and I probably had a beer in my hand. And I stopped right before I got to the door, and I looked at her and says, I am serious as I could ever be in my life. I want you to marry me, and I want us to get married as soon as possible. And she goes, what? She said, you're crazy. I can't believe you're asking me to marry you at a country music festival in a trailer house. <laughs> and I just laughed and walked out the door and did my show, and when I walked back into my dressing room, on my mirror, she had written in lipstick, yes, with big exclamation marks, says, I am going to be your wife. Wow. And it stuck for 26 years. Wow. It stuck for 26 And I still have that mirror, too, by the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, you both had careers. You, you did three tours together, the Soul to Soul tours, which were huge things. I, I thought we'd listen to one of the songs that the two of you recorded together. This is... Uh, not about a happy couple. It's angry all the time. You want to just say a little bit about this song before we hear some of it? Yeah, this is one of my favorite favorite records that we ever made. One of my favorite songs that we do together. It's just uh, it's so haunting and heartbreaking. Um, it's just one of those songs you sort of get lost in when you're performing it. Right. It's about a a man and, and a husband and wife whose marriage just has, 
has failed and they're talking about where they are. Let's listen. Our boys are strong now The spitting image of you when you were young I hope someday they can see past what you have become And I remember every time I said I'd never leave But what I can't live with is memories of the way you used to be The reasons that I can't stay don't have a thing to do with being in love And that's our guest, Tim McGraw, and his wife, Faith Hill, singing Angry All the Time. Boy, what a voice. Uh, <laughs> uh, she is one of the absolute best singers in the world. She just blows me away. Every time I'm on stage with her, I always compare it like a NASCAR trying to keep up with an Indy car. She just is, <laughs> she's special for sure. Yeah. Did it change your life in music? I mean, obviously it changed your life when you got married, but did it, do you think your music changed when you started performing with her? Oh, for sure. I certainly got better. I mean, I, I became a better musician, singer, performer, because she's fantastic at all those things. I mean, um, especially when we have to sing together, when we, when we do tours together. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get the evil eye from her when I'm off key trying to do harmonies with her. So it, may, it makes me stay on my toes. This is something that happens? Uh, well, yeah, I've gotten a look every now and then when I haven't been keeping up. But, but uh, it makes me step up pretty quick. But uh, she's just, I mean, I'm in awe of watching her on stage every time. I always say that she's like Aretha Franklin, Bridget Bardot, and Janis Joplin all rolled into one when she's on stage and performing the way she sings. Uh, we're speaking with Tim McGraw. He stars with his wife, Faith Hill, in the new Paramount Plus Western series, 1883. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. Um, you've raised three daughters. They're now, I guess they're all out of the house. Um, I think you're, Gracie, the oldest, got a master's from Stanford recently, right? Our middle, oh, okay. Maggie. Maggie, okay. A, yeah. Right, yeah. You know, you know, parenting, when you're a celebrity, can be a challenge. And in your case, both parents are celebrities. I'm wondering, you know, you got a lot of demands on your time. You're traveling on tours, whatever. Did you set from rules about how you wanted to handle the kids and their relationship to your careers? We did. We wanted to give them the most normal life that we possibly could, or at least make them feel as normal as they possibly could. And so, and fortunately for us, we were in a position that we had already had a, a, a great amount of success before we had our children. So we could call the shots pretty much. We didn't have to go do every little thing in the world just to keep our careers going or to keep the lights on or anything. We, we both had very successful careers. So when we got married and we had Gracie, we decided that, you know, I was only going to tour. Well, I toured the most. Faith toured a little bit. When they were young, they were always going to be with us. We always had them with us no matter where they went. Once, when once school started, I would only tour in the summer times when school wasn't going on and and Faith pretty much didn't tour at all unless we were touring together. And when we toured together, we would take them with us. Um, 
and and then when I was working, as I got older, even you know, if, if something backed up into the spring a little bit, or I had a show that was in the spring or the fall, most of it wasn't. Then I would wouldn't leave home till four or five o'clock, and I would fly to the show, and I'd be home at two in the morning. So I was there when they woke up every morning. I was there when they got home from school every day. I coached little league ball. I coached softball. I coached basketball. I mean, I think I can count on one hand the things that I might have missed with them growing up. And we're pretty much homebodies and, you know, cooked dinner every night when the girls were in school. So they would come home and there was something cooking all the time. So we tried to give them as normal life as they could have. And and they turned out probably more to their mother's credit than mine, but they turned out to be just remarkable, smart, talented, gracious young ladies. I mean, I couldn't be more proud of them. You quit drinking and got into a serious kind of exercise and health program when you were in your early 40s or so. Uh, You have a book about this turn to health called Grit and Grace, and it's not so much about drinking, although you mention it. It's more, more about just living a healthier life. And you write that a few things made you decide to get in better shape. One of them was going to a movie with your oldest daughter, Gracie. Tell us about this. <laughs> I do. And I still haven't seen that movie to this day. It's called The movie's called Four Christmases. But we went to another holiday movie when that movie was just coming out. It was a movie I did with, uh, I forget the, the names of everybody, but it was a Christmas movie I did. Um, so we were at another movie, and the trailer for Four Christmases came on, and my face popped up on the screen. And at that point, I think I was 215 pounds when we shot, shot that movie. And I'm 170 now, so it was quite a difference. And my, uh, my oldest daughter, my face popped up. She goes, geez, Dad, <laughs> you, you got to do something. And uh, it was like, oh, my gosh, my daughter just noticed that I look like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Um, you started with just walking every day and then got into serious weight training. And this book kind of takes you through the steps. And there's there's food recipes. Um, uh, you, you got in remarkable shape with all that, weight training, et cetera. The little detail I love is reading that when you would go touring, you know, you have these huge tractor trailers with you that follow the band that have all you know this gear and video stuff and instruments and sound equipment. But there's a, a step, separate trailer with, well, well you, you describe it. Well, we, we, it's a gym. We carry our own gym around, and it slides out, and it's a pretty big gym, and, and it's full of equipment that we bring outdoors, too. So when we're touring, it's usually, for me, it's it's, it's a three—I'm way better shape when I'm on the road touring. I stay in shape. You know, I do my couple hours every morning at home, and staying pretty pretty close anyway, but, but when it, we really fine-tune it when we get on tour, and um, we do—we'll do a workout in the gym in the mornings, um, then we run the— the arena or the stadium stairs and do a discipline at the top of each stair. And then we'll eat and then we'll take about an hour and a half, two hour break. And then at around three o'clock or so, we'll start our CrossFit with the ropes and um, kettlebells and tires and sledgehammers. And so we'll start a circuit, sort of a mix between cross training and circuit training that we'll start outside. And that usually goes for an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. And it starts with just just about everybody, but by the end of it, there's about four left. I was going to say, who is the we? Is this is this your band? Is it the, the roadies? Who is this? It's, it's the band mostly, but some of the crew guys jump in there as well, and sometimes the opening acts jump in there and, and go with us as long as they can. And then I always end it with an ice bath at the end of it. But right, <laughs> then, then go take a shower and get ready for the show. So, so you do this. I mean, this just really serious, strenuous workout, and then you perform? That's the way you do it? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, then you don't get that missing out syndrome at the end of the night when you still want the party to keep going and you want to stay away because by the time I hit the bus, I'm ready to go to sleep. <laughs> so it, it keeps the old guy sleeping well. Well, Tim McGraw, it's been fun. Thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Good talking to you. Country singing star Tim McGraw stars with his wife, Faith Hill, in the Paramount Plus TV Western series, 1883. All 10 episodes are available for streaming. On tomorrow's show, David Sedaris talks about his new collection of personal essays. Several are about his lifelong combative relationship with his father and what it was like at the end when his father was in assisted living and the ICU. He died one year ago at age 98. I hope you can join us. Freshair's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Prenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Dave Davies.